0: everyone thanks for downloading this episode of resound i'm your host of all episodes irregular dennis funk uh, so the other day third coast hosted an event in chicago called s-town hall where we invited the public to come and discuss the big podcast of the moment s-town uh, we had a good bit of interest in making this conversation available later on so for all of you here it is um, if you want to join in the discussion after you listen, we've made a Facebook group so you can chat and share your thoughts with other fans. For that, all you have to do is go to facebook.com slash groups slash S-Town Hall. That's S-Town Hall, all one word, uh, no hyphen in the S-Town bit. Well, I, I don't have a gavel, so I'll uh, call this meeting to order. Here is S-Town Hall.
1: Hello, hello, hello. So people have been coming up to us, and probably you too, and saying, what do you think of S-Town? So pretty spontaneously, I mean, we said, we've got to bring people together and have this discussion. That is one of the things that we love to do at Third Coast. Okay,
2: So who here feels like S-Town was like the first podcast you really listened to, round of applause? You have to clap, yeah. You got to clap. Oh my god, you guys are pros. Amazing. Okay, who's like a podcast expert? You listen to a bunch of stuff. Same,
1: same, same. So uh, a little bit more housekeeping for tonight. Here are the things that are going to happen. We are going to pose questions and hear your answers. We are going to uh, give you time actually to talk amongst yourselves. And at the very end, we're going to do, because this is S-Town Hall, what we're going to do is give people a chance just to state your case. Okay, so I'm going to start by asking, it seems like such a simple question, but I think it it actually is fairly complex, which is, what is S-Town about? So someone says to you, what is S-Town about? You say?
3: I think it's about one man's tortured being, one man's Struggle to find what's unfolding in his life, what his life is all about, and all of these the complexities that go along with all of us. I mean, it's it's a it's about one guy. It's about all of us, all at the same time.
1: What well, and it's about his tortured life.
3: A tortured life, but a complex life. I, maybe tortured. He's tortured, but everybody's life adjacent to him is so complex and twisted as well.
2: Great. Has anyone tried to describe this to a friend and just gotten stuck?
1: My friend asked if it was scary and I had a hard time responding. (laughs) Clap if you think it's scary. No, okay.
2: Has anyone had a really successful time describing it to somebody where like you described it and they're like, oh, I definitely want to listen. And if so, what did you say? We're asking because, I mean, it's been really hard for us to describe it's, uh, it to clearly people. Clearly, it's
1: hard. So, you yeah. know, what I tend to do is I don't want to give away that, okay, spoiler, there's going to be millions of spoiler alerts. Is anyone not finished? Okay. Oh, <laughs> Linda. Linda! Okay. It, there are many spoiler alerts, but you've probably gotten this he far. He has
2: mercury poisoning. You
1: know that he commits suicide at the end of the second episode. So, I, try, I, try, I don't want to give that away. So, I, I do... I, basically, I say it is—it's a, a story um, of a man who hates his town. That's where the name comes from. It's—it's it's shit town, uh, but that also represents how he feels about the whole world. So my description of it is really about John B. It's so much about John B. Um, and. Uh, that raises a lot of questions for me because there's a lot of other people in the story. And I think that's where it gets really hard to explain what happens. So, let's move on. Um, Oh, Colleen. People have asked me about this show.
4: Uh, I talk about those things too, but the other thing I point out is the idea of like, when you do pass away, and the story that's like still left to tell about yourself, and how his story gets told, and that doesn't often happen, right? So um, John B. could have left us, and we wouldn't have, like, known all these things about him, and all these characters wouldn't have come together in the way that they did. And the fact that, like, his story was told uh, makes it a really unique listen, and that's sort of how I get people to listen to it.
2: Hmm. That's great. So you tell them
4: that he dies? Yeah, yeah. Only because, like, while that's a big, I mean, that's a huge... That's a huge thing that happens in the story, but really, like, maybe that's not, what, that's not what it's about, right? It's about this larger story that is him.
1: Okay. So you get to that's Maybe that's not what it's about. That comes back to our question, what is it about?
5: Well, another way to describe it is in terms of form instead of content. That it's a delicate literary wolf in mystery, true crime sheep's clothing.
1: I want to. I I like that. I want to keep thinking yeah. about that. That's gonna. Let's let's keep thinking about that as that as as we as we come back to that.
3: It's it's kind of like a eulogy. There's this one of the important moments in it is when the 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 preacher gives the eulogy for for his life and. And they're like, wait a minute, that's not what he's like at all. And then it seems like what we get in the re- remainder of the, the podcast is what, what should have been in, in the eulogy, in a sense, right? I guess
1: that's, yes. And I wonder where Rita comes into that. And we can talk about that maybe in other ways, because I don't see where she fits into that eulogy, mm, particularly. You don't, like the f- that's your,
2: you don't love that storyline, right? I don't uh, love that storyline.
1: Okay. I'll admit it. Uh, but I, I, I feel like it, it, that's where I get f- confused about what it's about because where does the fight over his legacy of his just personal wealth that he may or may not have, where do, his trucks and tools,
6: where does that fit into that? Yeah. yeah. So this feels a little more complicated than a eulogy or feels like a very complicated eulogy um, right. through the eyes of a New York City producer named Brian Reed. Eulogies would be better, I think. If they were more
1: complicated. <laughs> so, so oh, well, one more and then we'll move on. So, I, I'm
7: sorry, i not told to that. So, um, I've read, I've heard this someplace that there's, you know, these like certain things that make a story, and one of those is Stranger Comes to Town. And so I feel like a lot of this is Brian Reed coming to town, and John B. has reached out to him to bring him into his world. And I think that's a big part of what
1: happens here. Mm-hmm. I like that. A Stranger Comes to Town. So one of the things, I mean, I just talk personally for me that that propelled me through this program is that I fell pretty quickly for John B. I was kind of infatuated with him as a very complex, interesting, funny, surprising person. We want to play a little clip to bring him into the room.
3: Basically, I've got these kids out here digging a hole between the house and the yard in the summer, and we're going to plant some cast iron plants. That's Aspidistra elator in case y'all don't know.
8: I um, don't know what either of the things you just said are, but that's okay, fine. Okay, well,
3: it's scientific name. That's a cast-iron plant. You know how these kids talk on cell phones all day long? You can't, do, you can't get them to do nothing because they're on their cell phone. And they're tweeting, and they're YouTubing, and they're always on Facebook. And I'm out there on the back porch. And if you keep your mouth shut, you'd be surprised what you can learn. Because, you know, kids around here have grown up so destitute, they don't have enough sense to be ashamed of anything. They'll just tell everything.
1: OK, so there's Jumbi. Uh I'd like to hear from other people when you fell for him or what about him captivated you, or maybe he didn't. And if so, why not?
9: I can't point to, in my mind, an exact moment, but I feel like he started kind of Grandiose and in charge and running the show. And and he knew everything. And he was all, to me, seemed like really right in his own mind all the time with what he was saying. These are the facts and this is the way the world works. And then it just started sort of to peel away these layers of perception or misunderstanding or truth or not true or that. And so he just became more way more complicated and way more interesting but
2: yeah he sort of lost control Like when
9: he started to lose control and sort of not have the I'm bringing this reporter in and I'm going to I guess you know it really started to fall, like, fall apart really early when he's uh, directing the, the, the um, kind of directing the search in the library where he's like oh like why are you why do you give a shit about this? Like, don't, or like showing no interest when, you know, going to a library in this place in Alabama for this reason is pretty specific. So I don't know. It just seemed, that got interesting.
2: Yeah.
1: I liked when he peed in the um, sink (laughs) while he was on the phone. That was a moment I was like, oh, John B.
2: Yeah, did anyone else have like a moment, a specific moment when they sort of, decided that John B. was a special, special kind of guy? Particular. Mine was when he, yeah, particularly special. Mine was when he, like, in the first episode, in the first chapter, he's talking and he interrupts to eat Tums. And he's like, ugh, the cheery one would fall out right away. <laughs> Does anyone else have a, a moment? Or just any um, reflection on John B? I,
0: I think that per, I, I have known several people who remind me explicitly of John really? B. Indeed, oh, indeed. Wow. And um, in ways good and bad. Um, but that for me, I think that the fact that he has total recall of the Latin names of plants, but then he refers to it as Little Caesar's Pizza Hut. <laughs> For for me, that that really cemented my relationship with him. That he is ultra specific in certain regards and completely oblivious to the world in others.
10: Uh, uh, I don't know. I have complicated or different feelings about John B. Initially, I mean, he's obviously so smart and charismatic and funny. And then in the middle, it seems like his mental illness became clear. I mean, I think he was probably manic depressive. And then at the end, it was really heartbreaking that long the long conversation we had with uh, his, not his lover, but his boyfriend or whatever from Charleston. I mean, that was like I I had a lot more compassion for him at the end.
1: So, oh, let's talk about some of the other characters, though. I'm sure we'll end up talking about Brian and John for the most part, but uh, because uh, John B. dies, you know, commits suicide at the end of the second episode. There have to be other characters who, or we call them characters, which actually feels a little demeaning. I shouldn't even say that. Other people in the program um, who drive it forward as well for you and who you who you care about or who interest you. And I wonder if there anybody wants to suggest a someone else. You were talking someone about someone who Olam. stood out. Yeah
4: uh this is such a tiny character and he doesn't necessarily drive it forward but from a producer perspective he was really interesting for me uh the family member of Tyler who had the um brain injury yeah so he for me for as a radio producer he was super interesting character because the producer had to acknowledge this thing that was happening in the background but the thing that was happening in the background was was great like it it needed to keep, you know, like that tape was such good tape. But it, for me, it sort of also painted a picture of Tyler's family and maybe what that whole scene looked like and having this guy there. And And I thought, even though he was small and didn't necessarily like move the story forward in like a specific way, I thought he added quite a bit to it.
1: Yeah, He added so much humor. And at first I thought, oh, you know, yeah, he had to explain this because you hear the man sort of echoing you know, what's going on in the foreground. And then I had a second thought, you know, Brian could have moved him away, but he didn't. So I think he actually, I think Brian actually liked having him there just for the reasons that you're talking about exactly. We, we,
2: were, we were struck also by these moments in the tape that don't necessarily move the story forward, um, but sort of add another layer of description um, and of imagery. So, I think, let's play, we have a clip um, that struck us as particularly literary, which is this word that's being used to describe the podcast, Um, and then we'll see what you guys think about it.
8: Before we had clocks, we had sundials. And I never thought about this until I started talking to John. But watching a sundial, which could be as simple as a stick in the ground, as the shadow crept along, you were actually witnessing the rotation of the earth. It's so much less abstracted than a clock a level closer to time itself. Anyway, John told me sundials often have mottos engraved on them. John says, tedious and brief is one. What do you mean?
3: tedious Your and brief? life is tedious and brief. All sundial mottos are sad like that.
1: So a lot of the clock imagery, and it even starts the first episode, starts with the description of clocks before you even know what this series is going to be about. Really, really love that. And I don't, know, I don't know if you saw that we tweeted that we really recommend that you listen to the whole series, then you go back and you listen to the first one, now knowing what happens. But going back and listening to the description of the clock, I, I, I really, really love that. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, this does not sound like a this American life piece, even though it came from this American life it doesn't sound like the first or second season of c's serial, so it'd be great to hear some of your thoughts about what they tried and what was new
2: and striking about this that you felt like you hadn't heard before so this is probably because
11: like there's a lot of podcasts out there that use true crime or I'm a big fan of like the lore podcast, which de- deals with death a lot but death is often used as like a way to frighten us or to give us history or to entertain us, but it's very, very rarely, at least in the podcast I am listening to used to remind us of our own mortality and then to just kind of like force us to sit in there. Um, And so I was just kind of struck that they really (laughs) were, it was one of the most like honest portrayals of like what our lives are actually about and okay. Making the listener uncomfortable with that and you can tell that Brian's uncomfortable with that as well. I I, when I listened to that little segment last night when I was listening to the long-form interview with Brian Reed because I replayed that, and then I was listening to this again right now, and I just like felt uncomfortable thinking about death in a place that I don't normally think about death or that I try to escape it. And so... Just kind of seeing them take this device that is so used in the medium that we're using and then say, like, no, we're going to kind of subvert how we use death and we're going to subvert, you know, the, you know, the, the twist, right, is that it's not, not true crime um, was really interesting to me.
1: Because you, you go into it thinking you're, it's going to be true crime, um, you hear, you know, just that description they gave, and then a death happens, and then there's a treasure hunt. Um, back this way.
3: This gets back to the scary comment, and it's not death that's scary in this story to me it's the, the loneliness that John B felt and the uh, isolation not just of him and, and just the, the I kept thinking over and over again like how many more John B's are there out there there's millions how many more Tyler's are there out there there's millions I mean the, every, as everything unfolded I was, I was struck by not how unusual this story is but how probably common it is especially when, when the the one episode when he talks about loneliness and, and, and how many people really don't find that love. And I'm thinking, I think a lot of people or struggle to hold on to it or struggle to, you know, over the the loss of it.
1: Yeah, and, that's, and you feel like that was handled maybe in a different way in this podcast or maybe something you don't hear on the radio or in podcasts?
3: You, you know, I think we hear it in in fiction and not in true life often even the true crime dramas don't delve into that I mean it's, I you know I don't listen to a lot of true crime podcasts but I've seen a lot of the uh, you know documentaries on on both public television and, and commercial television it seems to be a genre that falls into a sort of predictable pattern uh, uh, and it's just Yeah, they have these elements of them that are human and that we all can somewhat relate to, but not at this scale. The the depth of the humanity of of all the characters, I feel like, or most of the characters anyway, are are striking and and compelling in a a lot of ways. At the same time, I'm going to—I'll be honest with you. A lot of it made me, as a journalist, uncomfortable. Like that, I'm peering into something that's really not something that we should be, quote unquote, reporting. That this is this is a human drama. This is an incredibly well-told story but I don't know that it's like what we should be doing you know well I mean that's a whole other issue but yeah,
1: yeah and I want to get to that I mean one thing that's different is in a typical piece Brian Reed would go down there he would do his research he would find that a murder didn't happen he would think well you know I'm glad I met John B but that's the end of that story I'm going to pack up my bags and and go home I'm not going to visit another, as it turns out, about 12 times after John's death. So that's that's a real departure to think that there is a story after he finds out that there wasn't a murder.
12: Um, I think the fact that they took um, novels as their inspiration, and they've, they've been fairly explicit about um, saying that that was their inspiration. Uh, free them from a lot of the conventions of even long-form narrative audio like this idea of signposting that you have to be really clear about where you're going and saying trust us we'll get there and like here is some breadcrumbs we planted along the way and I think they just really wanted to free themselves of those conventions and so that's why they gave themselves license to tell this like sprawling, meandering story where they poked into some corners and for me there wasn't necessarily payoff in all those corners, which frustrated me the treasure hunt being probably one of the biggest ones but other moments were really beautiful even if they were kind of self-contained and that to me was really novel, not to um, make a pun out of it Um, (laughs) and I think the closest thing I've heard to that um, would be that one reply all episode where they just like kick around New York for a day because that was also kind of an episode about nothing um, with very little Payoff, except that you're just being asked to follow these guys along because you find them interesting in their own right. So that to me was like the only example I could think of where, you know, they had such freedom in the form.
1: Yeah. We would also, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that we've come to accept in radio. We've always done it this way. We want to tell people where they've been, where they are, and what's coming up. We're constantly sort of guiding. And that's because we assume, you know, you're kind of half listening or you space out for a minute because you are driving or you're doing something that requires part of your brain. Um, And they decided um, that they weren't going to do that. And that gives this a really, really different sound. You actually have to pay attention, or you can go back and you can go re-listen, because that's an option for you too. But it it gives it a very different feel and a feel that I personally really, really liked. now, never want to hear it again. <laughs>
6: never, never, want to, never want to hear the hand holding again, I should say. Mm. Um, but I was going to say something very related, which is I think that this podcast, for the first time, and especially in something like so long form, acknowledged that it's coming out of a literary tradition. It's coming out of a documentary tradition in a much more overt way than a lot of podcasts we hear, which seem to kind of feel like these immaculate new inventions. And so that was really exciting for me to hear them. Um, Referring back to Southern Gothic literature and to be using novelistic language, I think they didn't go the full way there. And so, when you guys say like, you know, it didn't sound like *This American Life*, I there were moments that didn't sound at all like *This American Life*, and then there were moments. I'm thinking of when we first get to know John and we're in the maze, and he's so negative and he's amazing. Um, Brian's like, "Wow, the maze—it's so green and beautiful," and John's like, "Global warming." Um, <laughs> And then we hear Brian come in as in this reporter mode, being like, yep, he's very negative. Yep, there he goes again. And for me, like when I was listening to it, I wanted them to go um, kind of full on literary and novelistic and, and to kind of leave this reporter like commentary out of the way. And I think if we get to ethical questions later, which I'm sure we will, it is this tension between um, this kind of novelistic literary nonfiction style and journalistic reporting that that asks a lot of the questions. Super helpful. So Um,
2: we're going to let you guys break up now into small groups. Um, If you want to combine with like four or five people next to you, hopefully you don't know a couple of those people. You can talk about anything that we've talked about up to this point. I want to add just one more Thing that you can discuss, which is like, what are the novels um, or sort of fiction uh, things that you, that this uh, reminds you of or that you want to recommend to other people now that they've listened to S-Town? Things that don't come from nonfiction journalism, but come from the fiction and literary worlds.
1: So you'll have this is an experiment. Yeah. We're going to give this a try. Yeah. It's going to go like about eight to ten minutes, and mm. then we're going to try to get your attention back.
2: With a bros for Emily. Is that what that song is called? Why Can I Never know? I think that's right. You'll recognize the song.
1: Yeah. And um,
2: cool. let's go.
0: A few moments later.
13: Okay, it sounds like you guys
2: like talking in groups, right? You're into it? okay i'm glad i'm super glad because we yeah we hope you like talking groups is there anything that you really want to share from your group with the the whole group something that came up that you're like that's the best idea ever okay definitely mercury poisoning for sure for sure oh by the way also we've tweeted a couple times with hashtag s-town hall you guys want to you know keep up the conversation on twitter apparently it was like being used before for like some conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton's campaign I don't really understand the hashtag but just looked it up for the first time and it like already exists but we can like reclaim it as our own yes no just hashtag s Hall um at third coast fest okay anything else you guys want to share did you learn oh yeah
12: Eric
5: well, we, our group talked a lot about whether whether this is an ordinary story, the story that you would see in a lot of places, or whether it was an extraordinary story. Whether whether there are in fact a lot of people like uh, John B. in towns all over the place. Their eccentricities are different. They may not be the world's greatest clock repair person, but that you will find people like this. And, and one member of our group, I don't where she goes. <laughs> oh, um, she was talking about this. she. Well, j- she used to work in a in a coffee shop and would see people coming in well just coming in with all kinds of with their own either lonely people coming in have these long Rococo stories to tell um, and and so the question is whether whether this is an ordinary story of of ordinary people that we're getting a deep look at or whether there's something extraordinary about S-Town
1: that's something I was thinking about with all the friends that John had I felt like he also befriended a lot of other people um, or other people befriended him who were Very similar in that they had you know they were autodidacts or they were just people who they taught they were self-taught and they were interested in very particular things about the world and in conversation about it and I imagine that some of those people also were fairly lonely outside of their relationship with with John I don't know and if that rings true for anyone else
13: I have to say that um, I was having lunch with my sweet, sweet barber. His name is Doug. He's, like, one of the sweetest humans. He grew up in rural Indiana, and the first thing... He listened to all of S-Town because I was like, you have to listen to it. I have to talk to someone about it. Um, And he was saying he knows all these people. These people are very familiar to him. He was like, I know Tyler. I grew up with Tyler. Like, all these people exist in his life currently, and so he felt... I don't know. I, I don't know if "very at home" is the right thing to say by listening to the podcast, but it was familiar, and he felt like it was something that was really accurate in the depiction of the state and the city where John was from.
2: Yeah, I mean, people's reactions also—I don't know—or er, it—it says so much about like where you're from and what you've experienced in terms of people, people's uh, strong reactions to it. But um, we're
1: saying there are all those people out there, and yet, do we ever hear them on the radio or? Mm. in podcasts maybe that's something else that this podcast did for us or this story
2: I can just say that was what I was thinking about saying when I was talking about how I described this podcast is I think as a northerner like hearing a story of the south hearing the story of the rural south in a time when in like politically I feel like everybody's talking about rural areas and everybody's talking about the south in a way that's like we have to figure out how to relate to that. We have to figure out what that looks, you know, like or like people in cities are, are. I feel like in my circles are having those conversations. It felt really relevant to just have this story. It
14: didn't even have to be about anything. That could just be about sharing an experience that doesn't get highlighted very often.
2: Well. Yeah, yeah, and then okay, so we have Brian, right? He's sort of our guide. He's distinctly northerner. Um, we're gonna play a clip of him in the tattoo shop.
8: I'm chatting with a few guys in a tattoo parlor, all of whom have heard about the murder. Some are pretty sure they heard it from Cabram himself.
15: You may call him and ask him? No,
8: don't, yeah, do, that. don't do that.
15: <laughs> well, I'm not a puss, dude. I don't give a fuck.
8: <laughs> Apparently I'm the puss, because I do not want the dudes I'm talking to to call Cabram right now. Already this tattoo shop does not feel like the safest place to walk into alone at night, trying to dig up info about a covered up murder by a guy everyone seems to know. All of which are things I've just done. The last thing I want right now is for the alleged murderer to show up.
10: Reactions to that. I think this whole crime thing was a was a, a red herring. I think he went down there and talked spent months down there and then the kid who the kid who supposedly killed the other kid was in this in the lumber yard the whole time. He could have saved himself six months and walked in the lumber lumberyard and had the conversation with him. But he kept running away from like you know, running away from the story from the from or from the the whether or not you know what, what happened that night at the, at the bonfire. He kept running away from that. You know he didn't want. To, he wasn't ready f- to hear the answer, so he drew it out un- unnecessarily.
1: Is that because he was enjoying? He felt like John had something for him, a story he wanted to tell. Or why did he do that?
10: I mean, I think he wanted a hook. Honestly, he wanted a hook for this whole this whole thing, and you know when, when there really wasn't one. it was enough. I mean, John was enough, but he probably didn't know it yet.
14: Okay, so he was looking for the hook. Um, yeah, I just, in response to, like, the, like, view of rural America, it, for me it felt, like, interesting, but in also inherently consumptive as, like, somebody who's living in an urban space and, like, then I get to, like, come to this bar and talk about it. Like, there is something that feels weirdly consumptive and, um, like, objectifying of these people's lives. Just wanted to bring that up.
1: Yeah, let's go over here.
16: Him going there and letting us see these people and letting us hear about poverty and letting us hear about how they feel about
1: race probably outweighs his outweighs that so i think i mean i feel like we're really aware that he's a northerner coming and telling the story is that something that's uncomfortable Um, are northerners allowed to tell stories of the south and vice versa is there that just sort of that outsider idea can outsiders come in and tell another uh, you know culture's story I mean and I, I wanted to go back to something that w- somebody said earlier
16: um, somebody I know who used to work in alternative newsweeklies in DC set, said something about how um, nostalgic this was for him because it was the way that alternative newsweeklies used to um, allow writers the because they had money and there were profits and and, um, they paid writers to follow go down rabbit holes. Um, they used to allow them to freedom to not know what the story was before they pursued the story and And so that was something that was really nice about about this story. There were times when Brian kind of got in the way and and I agree that not asking cabram the obvious question or you know. There were several times during the whole narrative when he should have jumped and didn't that made me really hate him.
2: Yeah. I mean, so, like, they had an incredible amount of time to make this podcast. But
16: overall... Yeah. The value in the thing is, I think, that a lot of what people are responding to is that it wasn't predetermined... The meeting wasn't predetermined, the message wasn't, he, right. the story wasn't even, and he came up with a, an amazing story that, you know, granted, he, any one of us could find if we, like, poked the person sitting right. next to us.
2: For, like, five years. Or his, <laughs> or her aunt. Yeah, yeah so nothing, nothing was predetermined.
14: Was there another a,
1: hand? Back there, yep.
14: Um, I'm also really bad at speaking in public, but um, one of the things that's been on my mind about this is that um, it's, it's for me, it's not so much about, like, whether uh, Brian has the right to tell this story or whether it's okay for someone from the North to go to the South and tell that story. It's about keeping in mind um, the assumptions that are brought to the story. So it's sort of, in ways, easy to see, like, Brian's framework. He telegraphs it. He says, like, I'm a Northerner. I'm from New York. But um, in this time right now, it's very easy, um, I think, for us to look at John B. um, I say us, I should speak about me. Um, Like, as a liberal person, uh, politically, it's easy to look at John B. and his hatred of this town and see it as a validation of some of the things that you sort of assume about Alabama. And it's, I think, easy to lose track of the way that this story validates those assumptions, that it's miserable for John because he's a queer, chronically ill, mentally ill person. Um, And it's, yeah, as a liberally minded person, it's easy to identify with that and through that lens just sort of like skew that view of rural Alabama. Um, And I think for, it's easy to be misled, I think, by how human the portrayal is of the rest of these people um, within that lens.
1: I mean, that that is one of the things that, that I I've, I've I've heard and I believe too that uh, Brian expresses a lot of empathy throughout for a lot of the characters not just John. Yeah. And that 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 is probably some one of the loudest things in a way that that, that I actually gives him so much credibility that he that he listens so well.
2: Right. And he's surprised by these events himself, right? So we, okay, we have The next clip um, to segue, it's uh, after John B has killed himself and it's Brian. I mean, we hear him on tape sort of figuring out or trying to figure out being at a loss for like who he is to this story at this point.
8: I mean, I want to I would like to come down and see you guys. I don't know. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't know what's appropriate. given. I mean, you know, I was doing I was slowly doing a story that involved John and I got to know him and care about him and know you guys and I'm not sure where that leaves me as like who am I to this this situation well, I mean, and, you know I, it's like I wouldn't,
17: if he if wasn't anything to this I wouldn't have called so how do you guys
2: think Brian handled this what do you think of his decision I actually think this was the moment that made me hate
14: Brian the most <laughs> Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I just felt like he was kind of putting himself in the spotlight when clearly John B. meant a lot more to many of the other people in this town or in his family than Brian did. And maybe it was the editing or the fact that, of course, like there's only two people in the phone call, one of them being Brian. But it felt like he kind of like interrupted this other person's grieving to say like, but what about me? Like what, can I, like, what should I do? Instead of being there for this woman who had a very difficult job of informing all these random people that John had killed himself, he was like, tell me what I should do. Instead of saying, what is it that you need me to do? Mm. That's how I felt. Anyone else? Reactions to that?
2: The person in the green
17: so for me Skylar in that moment um, was my best friend growing up I grew up in Alabama small town it was about 4,000 people I grew up Southern Baptist I moved up here about four years ago did a complete 180 but that girl like when she said that and that happened I just trusted her and I felt like what was supposed to happen was happening because he wasn't saying like, oh, this is great for my story. Can I come down? He was like, oh my God, like I'm still processing. You've been talking. I don't even know what you've just said. I'm just so confused. I just, I just responded to him two hours ago and she was saying, we're all feeling it and I wouldn't have called you. And like, that is absolute truth and like for him to be there for them and like be there with them. I know I heard him ask several times, like, is it okay if we're recording? Or he would even say like, I asked if it was okay. And, so I don't feel like he disrespected them. I feel like I'm really glad that she called him and told him that where she could have just said, "Well, he's just some New York guy, some Yankee reporter." What is he, th-? you know? But she really recognized that he was involved in, you know, their lives enough to get that story and like hear about some really intimate details of their lives and see them on the day-to-day. The whole thing just felt really real to me, really special. Does
1: that mean you feel like Brian probably did build those bridges? Even in that one visit there?
17: Well, for me, it's like he said, it's not a friendship because a friendship would go two ways. And John was too self absorbed. Like, nobody really asked, you know, Brian about himself. But they welcomed him in. And that's what I saw growing up in the South was like, if you show up at the door, all right, well, come on in. We got some dumplings over here, you know, help yourself. We don't even know your freaking name, but like, you're a person who's at my house. So, your family, come on in, take your shoes off, whatever. That was how they were with him, so it's a different dynamic than I feel like sometimes it can be in more uh, different whatever, economic areas, places, whatever.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, optional question for radio producers in the world, like, have you ever been in a, in a situation where you become friends with your subjects and you're not sure what to do with it? Moving on from that, too, I mean, you can answer if
4: you want. I, um, this is sort of, has to do with that, but, so... What you're saying is really interesting, because um, as a radio producer, like if maybe this is too much in the sausage, is that what people say? Um, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, But it was it was almost it was 100 percent necessary for our producer to have that tape of his connection in the South, welcoming him in in order for us to like, as listeners, to like buy into the rest of the story. Otherwise it would be too much of a, what is he doing there type thing. We like, we needed to hear like that side saying, come into our door. Um, and I think about that in other ways. The, the Ace hat. I think your, your point, sorry. Your, the point about the, about the first episode where he's like, keeps not wanting to do it and he could get it over with I like, I question now if that was, like, a structural choice that he made as a producer rather than, like, because at the end of the day, he had, like, hundreds of hours of tape, and, like, we are hearing, like, very specific amounts of that of tape, and so keeping that in mind, too, like, while listening to it, right, it's, like, it's a version of a reality that happened. Yeah.
1: So this, this turning point where he decides that he's going to actually, after John's death, um, go down back to Alabama uh, another, like, dozen times. How do people feel about sort of that decision at that point? That What do you think he was thinking at that time, and how do you feel about the choices that, that he made sort of from there on out?
3: I guess I'll talk about it from the opposite point of view as a... Journalists who does just mostly short public radio stories, news oriented. I'm thinking of all the times I've let people like that just go. That they, I, I don't have, I don't, a, I don't have that kind of time to revisit people. Uh, I've done a lot of reporting in the South, particularly after Katrina and after the uh, the um, uh, oil disaster in the Gulf. Uh, I've gotten to know a fair number of people that I have, some people I have revisited in places like Purlington, Mississippi and Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. I was thinking of a story I did um, the first Christmas after um, uh, Katrina. We did a series of stories on what does home for the holidays mean when you have no home and visiting people in trailers and in tent cities and things like that. And, And this woman who I just randomly knocked on the door of their uh their trailer a couple of days before Christmas. And that Southern hospitality, I mean, people in even in broken times and even in in like these incredibly tragic situations feel not just almost like an obligation in the South to talk to you, to welcome you. Uh they all know somebody, every person I talked to in the South knew somebody who had it worse than them, even if they lost family members, even if they had lost everything that they owned. That they knew somebody else down the street that they're much worse than my – there's something about that southerness that, that I do really am glad that Brian, like, un, let that unfold and let us kind of see that open up in, in some, of the, some of the people – this was a woman, though, that it looks like, well, you're coming back for Christmas dinner, aren't you, in her trailer? And I'm like, you know, this is two or three days before Christmas, and I'm like, no, I think I'll be home. <laughs> but, uh, but it's just the way, It's it. it I, and I think it is something that, that we need. Uh, that one of the things I did like about it is that it kind of opened this world in a more intimate way than we normally see, particularly in news broadcasts. So. Yeah. That,
2: that makes me,
1: oh, sorry, yeah, just i just want to know if anybody else sort of wanted to weigh in on this sort of this discussion
14: um so i felt like the the story was continuing because brian was being an advocate for tyler um you know the the cousins were this nemesis and it felt like at that point he was reporting um to figure out how how he could make things best for tyler like that was his role maybe honoring john that was brian's role sort of taking over
1: for john b in a
17: way yeah
2: This is also just reminding me that at the beginning I was like, we don't know anything about Brian. What's his personality? And then, I mean, we've sort of said this, like, we really experience him in his relationships, the way he relates to other people. Um, But I think let's get into even murkier territory, trickier territory, and then we're going to break up again into small groups and let you talk some more about everything that has been filling up this part of the conversation. So... This is a clip um, when Brian uh, is describing uh, why he's sharing something that John told him off the record. Um, and we just noticed this was like the time that he sort of most justified his decision on tape. Um, so here it is.
8: This is going to sound like a ridiculous question, but is there a gay scene down here?
15: Oh my God, there's no telling how many closet cases from his town. You turn that off and I'll tell you something. Hit the kill button for a sec.
8: This is one of the few times John ever asked me to turn my recorder off. What that usually means is that I wouldn't tell you what he said without getting his permission to describe it. But there are a few reasons I am going to give you an overview of what he told me in the car that day. First, since John died, two other people who knew him well have told me the same information on the record. Also, John was very clear that he did not believe in God or an afterlife. So John, in his own view, is worm dirt now unaffected by this. And lastly, what John disclosed and where it led me after he died it helped me understand him so much more. And I think trying to understand another person is a worthwhile thing to do.
1: Okay, we're, we're going to leave it there, and you can go back into the groups you had before, different groups, whatever you want to do. You have another ten minutes till the song begins.
10: Later.
2: I'm so glad that you guys have so much to talk about. In your groups. Yes, that's awesome. We're going we're gonna to like wrap it up all together, and then you can talk some more and meet even more people that you don't know yet and talk about audio and do all that nerdy stuff.
1: Um, so, we, you know, we did that voting beforehand. Who was the protagonist? I don't know if anybody would want to change their votes after the conversations, but Ariel has done the tally and can let us know. Okay.
13: So, uh, overwhelming vote for John B. Um hey. John B. Yeah, round of applause for John B. Um, Second place, Brian Reed. And I don't know about you, but I love the sound of a man crying, so that was some of my (laughs) favorite tape as well. Um, Third place was The Town. Um, And we got some very, yay, The Town. It exists. Um, And we got some interesting uh, write-ins. One was The Maze, which is maybe a nice metaphor for the entire podcast. Um, one was Tyler, sweet Tyler. One was Mary Grace, sweet Mary Grace. One was just podcasts, <laughs> because we're all winners. And my absolute favorite was a write-in for loss and regret. <laughs> so there we go. you reading those made me think
1: about what I loved about the series and most I had some I, you know I'm a critic, so I'm always going to find things I don't, I wish could be different or better or whatever, um, but uh, just so glad that this was made and that I got to know the people um, in in the in the series in S town. so I, we want to wrap things up by talking about you know the ending and how you feel about the characters at the end, all the people we talked about and some that we haven't. Um, but how do you feel like it wrapped up? How do you feel like it ended? In that, in that last episode, uh, we hear that he might have uh, had mercury poisoning. Uh, we hear that he's been self-harming. And we hear that, um, I think what was his great grandfather is someone who came across, you know, who came by the land that they now live on, and maybe not the most legit way. And that he um, is actually, his middle name uh, is named for his grandfather. So um, wondering how people feel about how, how we wrapped up, all the places we went, and then where we ended, um, that what you were left with, and, and how you felt maybe, for instance, about Tyler at the end. So thoughts, anyone?
14: I, I just want to add a question, which is kind of the reason why I came, which is who has the gold. I'm so glad you asked that question. Agreed. We're also. What I do mean, people think about that? Do they care
1: about the gold? More was questions. That a, was that? That's a great question too for the for the
2: moment that you guys are encouraged to come up here and like speak your piece, in into this microphone too. Um, but yeah, no. Do you have another question, Dad? So
9: there's this moment at the end when he seems to like. Uh, He's asking Tyler, you know, if you ever find it, think about telling me. But there's this really long pause that makes me... I mean, it kind of made me think about the, um, you know, his choice to to tell the stuff about his sexuality that was off the record. I don't know. It just was, like, kind of setting something up that was outside of the room. Yeah, that I just wanted... I don't know. It made me wonder... Is, there, is he going to come back and tell us about the gold, or is he just like, asking us to think about this? Yeah. Did you care about the gold? I had kind of gotten over it at that point, but then it got a, But then I was wondering why, he, why it was there again.
2: Yeah, we have to fill in some holes, I think.
1: Well, one of the uh, thoughts is that he committed suicide because he had actually run out of money. I don't know. That's maybe at the rumor stage, but...
5: Right at the end, when they read, he reads from his suicide note and the suicide had happened what a year and a half or 2 years before the conclusion of the podcast and it actually made me very conscious of the fact that this this entire documentary was was or podcast was really structured and he was withholding things and telling you things and that this it was not i mean you had a feeling like it was just kind of unspooling as it went along and he was he was kind of doing it on the fly but but that made me realize that that there's artifice to this, and, and that, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but that, that, that he did construct this, and he was, that was a very powerful ending, but he must have read that letter two years before he actually got to it in the story.
1: Did you like where it came up at the end?
5: It was a very powerful ending, but, I, but it made me really conscious of the fact that he, was he had been withholding things from us all along.
3: Well, just to add what Eric is saying, I wonder at what point he realized, Brian, that this was not what he set out to, to find, I mean, he kept going back after finding that the murder wasn't a murder. And, and then we think, oh, it's all about this property fight. Like, does Tyler get what he should get if he really does deserve it? Does the cousin get it? You know, like, is that what this is about, a fight over money? And, and all this kind of the way it unfolds, I, I too was like, oh, that was a ruse too. Okay. Uh, but I wonder at what point and how many times he went through different variations of this. This is the producer and me. Thinking about like when did he come up with what he came up with, you know, like, like at what point did he realize, Oh, th- this is what I've got?
1: Well, it was uh, a big group effort, yeah. And, and know, I know, you know that they, I, I do
3: know that. I yeah, mean, I know like, how many times this probably went through edits and just changes, and, and the structure changed too.
1: I guess there's, I, I think, uh, maybe there's a picture of it somewhere, maybe because long form interviewed Brian, but they worked with post it notes and they reorient, you know, they. Rejiggered exactly how this show, how this project would unfold, in many, many, many different ways, before they settled. Anything else about where you feel at the at the end of the story, or and, and you know where, where where it leaves you in that last in that last episode? One of the things that I felt like is that I mean, some people said that the town was the one of the uh, was a. Protagonist, I really felt like I wanted to. I knew the, some of the people in the town, but I never had a picture of the town. Like, I wanted to know the town better. You're disagreeing or agreeing? No.
0: I'm completely agreeing with you, Joanna. I think that uh, that there is so much of uh, scene painting that goes on. You know, I know exactly what that. Um, what the maze looks like but i don't have any idea as to what the surrounding area is that that much was not filled in for me as a listener um and i think that that is a failing on the part of the producers to you know i mean because we we know that there is a lumber lumber yard we know that there is a fairly racially charged um Uh, Tattoo Parlor slash bar in another town over. That's one of the things that seems to get glossed over. It's not in um, Woodstock. Thank you very much. See, again, (laughs) Um, uh, uh, the the main setting of the show.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and there's a trailer park across from where uh, John lives, but yeah. Yeah, um, Uh, do you want to... Okay, so... If we want to, if there are any more comments that, that kind of to address that question about where we end up, if not, we can do this. We can try this other thing, this other experiment. The last <laughs> one went so well; uh, we're ready for another one. Uh, people, in, in living up to the name of this town hall, if people just want to have an opportunity to talk about whatever you want to talk about that has to do with this town, we welcome you. At this point. To do that, who is going to be the first brave soul? Um, Okay,
0: 30 seconds. Okay. Uh, Listening to the show, I was taken back to the audio documentary, Ghetto Life 101, that was produced here in Chicago. And I think that there is so much power in long form audio documentary Uh, especially telling the stories of lives that we don't come into contact on a day-to-day basis. And I really want to express this um, or impress upon you that you should go and check out all of the beautiful work that's been done um, in the corpus of recorded (laughs) long-form narrative storytelling. Uh, And that's that.
2: Damn. That was amazing. We didn't hire him, but like we would have hired him to say that.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, go to thirdcoastfestival.org to find Get a Life 101 and so much more.
2: I can't raise this, but does anyone else want to make a point? Is there anything that we missed tonight? Yes.
1: Yeah, yes. go for it. Go for it. We missed a lot.
2: We
14: missed so many um, I had just one thing that I thought of based on what you just said. I thought of Get a Life 101, and I also thought of Our America, which was another documentary, and I also just kind of wondered, like, what would have happened if instead of Brian doing the story, they would have handed the recorders to the people who lived
2: there and had them shape this a little bit more, I felt a little like
14: that line to me was fuzzy about who was in charge. But I know that a, narr- I know that a narrative should be shaped by the person who's creating it. So anyway, it just kind of brought up all these
6: questions and um, made me feel a bunch of strong emotions that were conflicting, that's it. Great, thank you. That was a perfect 30 seconds. That was.
7: Yeah. Yeah. So a question I had coming in to this um, had to do with whether anybody interacting with John B. could have saved him from killing himself, and so because there's so many times in the stories where somebody says, "Well, I just talked to him," and um, and I just felt like could somebody have connected? And I know you know that's what I was. Hoping for, or, um, and I was wondering if anyone had regret, anybody in the story, Brian maybe in particular, had any regrets for things that weren't said um, or that could have been said to have
5: saved him. So these questions about journalistic ethics took me back to Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer. So I just want to leave you with the first line from that book which is something like every journalist who's not too stupid or full of himself to know what's going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. Which I say not to condemn Brian, but to let him a little bit off the hook, Uh right? Because if he's a little bit ethically suspect, all journalists are. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Yeah,
3: so I'm not going to even get into that, but um, (laughs) Shit town obviously wasn't Woodstock. To me, it was John B's Shit Town. What he lived in was the Shit Town, and which got me in the, the entire, from the end of the second episode on, it got me thinking about suicide. Suicide affects so many people and is so, it's just not talked about, and the reasons for it and the. The people banging their heads against the wall trying to figure out why what could I have done to stop it and uh, so I will leave you all with this I 've known some people who have struggled as survivors of suicide that they not that they 've tried it and survived, but they've are the ones who have to live their lives after someone close to them have committed suicide and there is an organization called Alliance of Hope uh, alliance of hope. org I think it is or aoh dot org that yeah, i i'm not as a journalist not crazy about promoting organizations but a friend of mine uh, and her mother run this after her brother was uh took his own life and um there are resources out there just that's that's my point and that one of the things i liked about this story was without saying so directly it, it addressed that nasty mess that's left when someone takes their own life no matter how many people they think that they don't affect that they affect so many lives and uh they're all left with these crazy questions. So to me, the, sub, you know, the number two character was, was suicide. Yeah.
2: Okay, so. Any more community members of our town oh. hall?
17: Okay, so what really struck a chord with me was when Brian kept stopping John and saying, like, wait, 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 why do you have to kill yourself? And he says, I'm just tired in a way that I cannot put into words because I've I've felt that way. And um, it made me think about what more I can do or what more we can do for each other to help each other out when it's not okay to talk about being depressed, and it's not okay to talk about wanting to kill yourself. Um, So how do we know if someone near us is actually going through that? Like, really, I'm just tired. I just don't want to be anymore, I'm tired. Like, how can we help each other? How can we lift each other up? Just, you know, quit being petty, basically.
2: Anybody else? This is getting super touching and, like, (laughs)
15: Okay. <laughs> uh, the, the line that stood out most to me, and you played it on the tape before, was something along the lines of what's so wrong about wanting to get to know somebody else. Mm-hmm. And the whole story to me was getting to know John and understanding who he was and where he comes from and how different he must have felt, as I know a lot of people express their sentiment of being Uh, city dwellers and not understanding what it's like somebody living in a rural area and just about how many people we might come across whether it's here tonight or within the course of our own lives who how well do we really know them and do we understand them as well as brian came to understand john throughout the course of the story so just a, a good way to be introspective for ourselves to ask the question do we know people that we interact with every day whether it's our siblings our coworkers, our spouses and to just try and dig a little bit deeper and understand what everybody around us is going through every day. Thank
1: you. I think we'll wrap it up there unless anyone else wants to get up to the mic for the town hall, part of the town hall. Thank I, I want it I mean thank you so much for everyone coming. You don't, you know, a lot of people don't know one another here and this was a really nice time for us, and I hope a cathartic time for everyone. We have um, one more clip we wanted to play. Here's the
2: last moment of us
8: Bibb County, Alabama came into its own as a thriving coal county in the late 1800s. Though the boom times wouldn't last long, in the 1890s, with the population on the rise, the citizens of Bibb started taking advantage of each other, stealing from each other, murdering each other, burning each other's houses down, It got so bad, a newspaper called the county Bloody Bib, and the name stuck. Bloody Bib, the 1890s version of shit town. In 1891, one of the main perpetrators of this chaos, the most notorious gangster in the county, Jesse Miller, who extorted lots of land for himself and stole his neighbor's cattle and cotton, and whose gang killed people who knew too much, was finally locked in jail, but then escaped and fled Bib County for good signing over control of all his land in the county, to his son, Brooks. Years later, Brooks took a 124-acre parcel of the family land and transferred ownership of it to his daughter, Mary Grace. Years after that, in 1965, Mary Grace, pregnant, began a ritual of sitting on that land and rubbing her stomach and pleading to God, saying, please, Lord, give me a genius. Lord, please, just make my child a genius. On March fifteenth, 1966, she had a red-haired boy, gave him a middle name after her father, Brooks, and brought him home to the 124 Acres, to an old house with three chimneys in the middle of the woods.
2: So it's kind of crazy that we all just listen to the end of S-Town together because, I mean, I know I spent like, what was that, seven hours listening to it by myself. Um, thank you guys for coming. We, uh, tomorrow we're going to send you all a link to a Facebook page uh, called S-Town Hall where we can keep talking and we're going to open it up to people that weren't here at this event too. Um, and then we can keep talking about all the things of S-Town. There's so much. Thank you for coming. The
0: summer is here at last The sky is overcast
6: And no one brings a rose for Emily She watches her flowers